worship. It's a sweet uh, new tradition that we're beginning here. So we are in a series that we're calling, uh, we're calling Revolution, but really this is a sermon or a series in which we are unpacking the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever delivered. And if you've got a Bible, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Because we are going to continue, and by the way, this, this series will continue through the rest of the year with a brief little stopover on December 24th when we have our, uh, our two Christmas Eve services, one in the morning that will be an all-family service. Uh, the kids will be w- leading us in worship that day, and then that evening we'll have our traditional candlelight service at 5 p.m. So there's two different ways to worship. Those will be two different services, and looking forward to that. But this sermon, I, what I'm realizing, if I'm honest with you, is that although Jesus may have delivered this in a day or two, um, and there are only three chapters, and I, I have only given us about 12 weeks to work through it, and it is not nearly enough time, because there's so much meat in this. Sometimes it feels like we're just drinking from a fire hose trying to get through it. And I'm, I got to just say, I was so unbelievably proud of Jimmy last week. That For the first time in front of your peers and adults... I, I could not help but grin the entire time because he was phenomenal. And then Jeff the week before, it, it's been really, really fun for me. And I'm grateful for those couple of weeks um, to be able to start preparing for 2018. So today we are going to pick up a conversation that for Jesus and his audience had already been going for hours. It, he began his sermon with this reminder of the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world. And if you weren't here a couple weeks ago, I explained that a kingdom is wherever the sovereign ruler's will is carried out. So by that definition, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is wherever God's will is done. And anybody who willingly submits their desires to the will of their king becomes a citizen of the kingdom of God. It's just a working definition that as we begin to work through the Sermon on the Mount begins to grab some flesh. And today when we get into Jesus's prayer that he leads his disciples and we're going to realize it helps give us some handles for what he's inviting us to pray for. Um, Towards the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins to explain or, 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 or uh, kind of focus on the differences between life in the kingdom of this world where we do what we want to do versus life in the kingdom of heaven. Because the kingdom of this world says that the wealthy, the rich are blessed. And Jesus would say, actually, those who are blessed are those who are spiritually impoverished. Those who recognize that they have absolutely nothing with which to buy their God's affirmation of them. They can't make themselves righteous. And because of that, when the gift of grace is extended to them, they truly feel blessed. And in fact, they're in a position and a posture to take hold of that blessing. The world would say that it's the powerful that are blessed because they're the ones who ultimately get to dictate what happens in this world. And Jesus would say, actually... In the kingdom of God, blessed are the peacemakers, because ultimately they will be called sons and daughters of God. The world would say the comfortable are blessed. And Jesus would say, actually, blessed are you when you're persecuted for my name, because you recognize that this is not your home and comfort in this world is not the greatest goal. And so you put your hope in me rather than your hope and your circumstances, just like this last song that we got to sing. And pretty much like I just wrecked my voice on that one because that was one I just had to sing at the top of my lungs. 
So Jesus begins his sermon with this beautiful, poetic way of, of, of illustrating the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world. And then he looks to his disciples and he says, okay, now you guys get to live not only as citizens of this kingdom, but as ambassadors of it. So live as salt and light, salt that preserves, light that illuminates the darkness and helps guide people towards safety, namely towards me. And then he begins to explain that, hey, I haven't come to abolish the law, to throw it all out. I haven't come to bring something that's so radically new that it is different from what God originally had in in mind. In fact, what I'm doing, the only way this is new, is that you've completely missed the point of what God intended when he gave you his law. He intended to help show you what it looks like to live as his ambassadors, as a holy nation set apart for him that ultimately reflects his love for the world. He gave you these ten commandments to show you how to live in relationship with him, the first four, and with one another, the last six. But of course, people are sinful. And our tendency is to turn those rules, or those, those laws, into just nothing but a bunch of rules. And so Jesus begins to strip away the religious veneer that's been put over the law to expose them to the heart of what God had in mind for his people. So you've heard it said, do not murder. But I'm telling you guys, murder begins in the heart. God's not just after your external actions. He's after your heart. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I'm telling you that adultery begins in the heart when you even look at somebody else lustfully. You dwell on that. That's where adultery begins. The world would say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's okay to get even. In fact, it's important to get even. But I'm telling you, don't be the kind of person who has to get even. Be the kind of person that breaks that cycle of returning hatred for hatred. Be the kind of person that is willing to sacrifice your comfort and turn the other cheek. Don't be the kind of person who has to swear on your mother's grave. Be the kind of person whose yes is yes and no is no. And people can take you at your word. Be the kind of person who not only prays for those who love you, but prays for your enemies. Do you see how every single time he brings up one of these subjects, and he's just, I think he's just grabbing examples from their life and saying, do you see how this approach is so different from the way you've approached the law? Because you've turned the law into these lines. You say, you shouldn't cross this. But I'm telling you, God is after your heart. He's after the root of your motivation. Because if you can heal the roots it will affect naturally the the fruits of your life. And with that in mind, he then begins, he continues his sermon in chapter 6, where he begins to look at their external religious actions. So he's looking now at this point at those who would consider themselves to be religious in that audience. And by the way, if you're here today and you have not yet said yes to Jesus Christ, you don't consider him your Lord and Savior, then this is going to be interesting But this isn't speaking to you. This is speaking to those of us in this room who have said, you know what, I want to follow Jesus as my Lord and Savior. This is speaking directly to how we go about working out our faith and living out our faith day in and day out. Chapter 6, verse 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, Don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues or on the street corners to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. 
But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you that they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. And when you pray... Don't keep on babbling like the pagans do, for they think they're going to be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive those people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father won't forgive you your sins. And when you fast, don't look somber as the hypocrites do. For they disfigure their faces to show others that they're fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head, And wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. So there you go. That's what we're going to cover today. And I, this section, just like he did when he said, listen, I'm not come to, um, you know, undermine or throw out the law, but really to kind of grab hold of the heart of it, to fulfill it all. In the same way, right now, he, he, he throws out what he, we could consider the thesis statement for this section and then gives us three examples. So that thesis statement is found in verse 1 of chapter 6. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Be careful not to do your religious actions externally, simply so that people will see it and and think more highly of you. What he's talking about here when he's talking about doing your religious actions or practicing your righteousness is simply working out your faith. It's, It's the actions that we do that we would consider to be religious, coming to church, tithing, prayer, fasting, giving to other people, serving. These are all what what, what we today might call spiritual disciplines. I prefer the term spiritual practices because the more we practice them, the more it strengthens our spiritual muscles and our legs so that we are able to be a better witness to them, the more it begins to shape our heart. And yet, Jesus is not simply focused on the external. Notice that he's not saying, hey, if you do these things, then... He says, when you do them. One of the things about Jesus in this section is that he expects his disciples to practice these things. Giving, you know, uh, charity, caring for other people's needs, not simply hoarding what you have that God has entrusted to you for your own well-being. We've been blessed in order to be a blessing. So when you give, here's the attitude you should have. Prayer, something that we should do regularly. When you pray, not if you pray. And fasting, maintain, you know, maintaining a humbling of ourselves and, and choosing not to eat or choosing not to partake in something else that we are used to doing so that we can 
kind of connect with God and when you fast, not if you fast. So there's an expectation that his disciples will continue to do this. But more so in this section, he's very focused on why we're doing it. What is the motivation behind it? Again, he's going to the roots of our motivation before he's addressing the fruit of our actions. And let's go ahead and go through these really quickly. Number one. Yes, sir. Oh, thank you very much. I'm kind of going through my Barry White phase right now. Puberty has struck. I typically sound like Barry Manilow for those of you who are not from different Barry. Okay, so number one, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. I want to talk about rewards for a moment, because time and again throughout this section, Jesus will constantly refer back to, if you do this, your reward is already got, then you won't get a reward from your Father, and you're going, what, what is the reward of doing these religious actions? Well, what is the point of, of doing any sort of spiritual act again and again. The desire underlying all of that is a greater intimacy with our Father in heaven so that we would in this life better reflect his heart and ultimately to have eternal life that we will spend eternity with him. Which is why early on or or later on in this same sermon, Jesus will say, listen, there's going to come a day when people will, in the day of judgment, people are going to stand up to me and say, Jesus, did we not do this for people? And did we not cast out demons? And did we not preach great messages in your name? And you'll say, get away from me because I never knew you. You weren't doing those things for me. You were doing them for other people. Your motivation was to curry the favor of people around you, not to draw more closely intimate with me. So you have no part in this kingdom. You never have. So what's our reward? Our reward is greater intimacy and an ability to better reflect the heart of our Father God in Him. So when you give to the needy, not if, when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the street corners. Now this word hypocrite is a fun word because in our culture we use it to talk about somebody who's two-faced. There's somebody who says one thing and does another thing. Says you shouldn't smoke while they go out and have, they, they have their half a pack, right? Says to their children, you shouldn't yell. And then they turn around or, or, or they say you shouldn't yell, but as they're doing it, they're yelling at them. Guilty. Hypocrite right here, right? So by that definition, it is simply somebody who says one thing and lives a different way. But the term hypocrite actually comes from the Greek stage, Throw this picture up here. A hypocrite is an actor or an actress who would wear masks because in that day, these amphitheaters were massive and the people in the nosebleeds wanted to be able to see people's faces so they would wear these massive masks with either a happy face or a sad face or a mad face and you would have different people playing multiple characters throughout any given play, kind of like Eddie Murphy, right? He was just going to play lots of different characters And these are hypocrites. So when Jesus said, don't be like the hypocrites, what he's saying is, don't be an actor or an actress. Stop performing for people's approval. Because if that's your goal, then your audience is not your father in heaven. You don't have an audience of one. You have an audience of many. And they're the ones that you're looking to get your reward from. So when you give to the needy, Don't announce it with trumpets. Don't toot your own horn about it. Don't post on social media letting everybody know what you're doing. 
Because that's what the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the street corners because they want to be honored by other people. They want people to know what they're doing. I tell you truly that they have received their reward in full. But when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Don't even, don't even dwell on it yourself. Don't even puff yourself up. What a good Christian I am. I had a little extra and I gave it to those people. I'm awesome. Because if the goal here is to share the heart of God and to become more like him, the more we puff ourselves up with these things, the, more we become, or the, the less we reflect his heart and the less beneficial it is. If our reward is affirmation from other people or even from ourselves, then congratulations, you've got it. Similarly, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. For a, a, a practicing Jew, they would pray three times a day in the morning, in the afternoon, and in the evening. They had set prayers that were laid out for them that they would pray through every single day. And oftentimes, a, a Jew who was, who was practicing their faith, as they're walking through the streets, they realize, it's time for my afternoon prayers. They might stop right there and publicly do their prayers so that everybody can hear them, and they do it loudly so that people go, wow, what a righteous follower of Yahweh that is right there. They're doing their duty, you know? And, and Jesus is saying, don't do it that way. Because if your goal is to curry the favor of people around you and make them think that you are more holy than you really are, then congratulations, you've already received the benefit of why you were praying. But when you pray, not if, when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. Because here's the question. Who are you ultimately praying to? Are you praying to your Father in heaven? Or are you actually secretly thinking about what everybody else is thinking when you're praying and your focus is more on them? I am guilty of this often. I find myself, when I am asked to pray publicly, that I'm thinking, I'm more concerned with what people will think. Am I articulate? Am I eloquent? Does it sound good? And my focus is completely disjointed. It is the antithesis of why I'm praying there. Jesus has more to say about prayer, but we're going to, to skip past that for just a moment. We'll come back to it in a couple of minutes because I want to finish this line of thinking before we jump into the next. Verse 16. When you fast, don't look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others that they're fasting. Now, culturally, there was one day that the people of Israel were called to abstain from food, and that was the Day of Atonement. It was a day when they would publicly cease to eat they would put on sackcloth and ashes and they would, it was a day of humbling themselves and recognizing, Father God, we have sinned against you. It, that was the day that the high priest would go in and offer sacrifices for the people. But there were some very religious Jews who felt like one day a year was not enough and so they would actually practice it twice a week because Moses went up on Mount Sinai on two particular days, we're going to fast on those particular days. And it wasn't enough simply to fast. They wanted people to know they were fasting. So they would not comb their hair. And they would wear long robes or, or, or sackcloth or something. And they'd put ashes over their face to look like they were in mourning. And they would walk around, oh, I'm so hungry. And people are going, wow, that person's really holy. That person's fasting when they don't have to fast. They must really love God. And God is saying, 
Golf clap for you. Gold star for you. Everybody is so impressed. But if your goal was to curry people's favor rather than actually humbling yourself, you have just done the opposite of what that fasting was intended to do. It is there to humble you and remind you, I am God, you are not. I'm the one who provides for you. You are dependent upon me for everything. And instead, you're using fasting as a way to elevate yourself and puff yourself up with pride. So congratulations, but don't expect anything from me because this is the audience for whom you are performing, you hypocrites. And as I've been reading this, I've been having to look at lots of the ways that I practice externally my acts of righteousness, my spiritual practices, my spiritual disciplines. Why do I give? Do I give because... I want to give because I'm grateful to God for the ways he's provided for me or do I give because it's expected or because people will think differently or because I want people to see what I'm giving because if that's my goal, I might as well keep my money in my pocket because it's not honoring to God. Why do I serve? Is it because I have been so blessed by God that I want to turn around and kind of reflect his love to other people? Or do I serve because I want people to be impressed with what a great servant-hearted person I am so they'll think more highly of me? And if that's the case, I might as well stay home. Because who am I really serving there? Them or me? And when I pray, who am I talking to? God or my peers that are are within earshot? If If it's... You guys, then I need to keep my mouth shut. I need to pray silently or I need to go somewhere else. And why do I fast? Why do I choose to abstain from certain things? If it's so that other people will be impressed and I might as well stop at in and out on the way home. Because in no way am I humbling myself. If anything, I'm building myself up in my own mind and in the minds of other people. And it is an audience of many rather than an audience of one. And Jesus' heart here is constantly to go back to the roots of our motivation. Why are you doing the things that you're doing? Who is your audience for whom you are performing? More so, and I, and I hate even talking about an audience of one in the sense that it would make us We're such performance-oriented people that it's so hard to break out of this mindset that you don't even have to perform. Think of one of your children. I I think of Ethan or Grayson. When they feel like they need to do something to curry my favor so that I will be proud of them or, or be happy with them or forgive them if they've messed up, they are not able to rest in my love for them. When we go into performance mode, That is our brokenness, and that is an insecurity that's born out of a world that says that love is is earned. Love is something that's contingent upon action. And far too many of us go through our days with that mindset. Many of us have learned this from our parents. They were only happy when you got A's or B's. And so you learn to be a good performer. They were only happy when you broke your own swimming record or when you scored a goal or you did something that they could be proud of. And so you tried harder to earn their approval. And sometimes you realize, you know what? I'll never make them proud of me, so forget it. I'm just going to make myself happy. And far too much of the world operates from I have to do something to earn love. And God says, that's not the point. I love you so much that when you were in open rebellion to me, I sent my son to die for you so that you could be reconciled to me. 
That's how much I love you. It is not a love that is contingent upon your effort. It is a love that is contingent upon I love you, period. So may we not be hypocrites. May we stop acting and simply start living out of the love that our Father has for us. Okay, we're going to switch gears. So much to get to, so little time. We're going to now focus on the second part that Jesus talks about in prayer because there's such a rich... Uh, I've just been, God has been teaching me a lot about this subject in the last several weeks, and so I just want to share with you what he's been pouring into my life and see if it benefits you as it's much as it's been benefiting me. Let's look at verse 7. When you pray, don't keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they're going to be heard by their many words. Now, Several times in Scripture we see when one of God's followers will interact with the pagan crowds and they'll have like, for instance, Elijah, one of God's prophets, gets into a prayer off with the, the prophets of Baal, which is one of the pagan gods that they serve. And he basically says, okay, let's see whose God is real. So let's both build an altar, let's both make a sacrifice, and then let's both pray to our gods and whichever one sends fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice wins. Good? And the prophet's like, sweet, let's do it. Prophets, you go first. So the prophets of Baal start cutting themselves and, and they start praying and they start chanting over and over, Oh Baal, hear us! Oh Baal, hear us! Oh Baal, hear us! Over and over, for hours they're chanting. Nothing happens. Finally, Elijah says, dump some water on my altar. I, I don't need any help. I want to make this more difficult. Dump more water on it. Keep dumping water until this thing is completely soaked through. And then he simply says, God, show him. Boom, and the entire altar is consumed. Another time, Paul and some of his traveling companions are in the city of Ephesus. And they begin to challenge this belief that Artemis, this goddess of fertility, is a true goddess there. And the artisans begin to get up in arms. Man, this Paul is beginning to undermine our business because we make these statues of Artemis and everybody's going to think that she's nothing and they're not going to buy our idols. So they stir the crowds up and all of a sudden we see thousands of people in Ephesus in this kind of uh, public arena shouting, chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians over and over and over for two solid hours. Chanting, chanting chanting. When he says, do not babble like the pagans, what he's saying is, don't just keep repeating things without thinking. Don't check your mind at the door when you pray. Don't just say things over and over as if you can somehow cajole God to do something. Because that's a lot like when my boys are at a crosswalk and they go up and they push the button once and then they push it like 42 more times thinking that that's somehow going to make it change quicker. You think that has any effect? It doesn't. So save your breath. Because your father already knows what you need before you even say it. Instead, he says, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, or may your name be kept holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And some of you are going, wait, you stopped too soon. There's a couple more verses. Aren't you supposed to say, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever? And the truth is that that term or that, that last verse 
is not in the most ancient manuscripts. It's something that kind of came later on and was added on, and I think it's beautiful, and I'll talk about it in just a moment, but that's not actually in the most ancient manuscripts. So, Jesus lays out a path for prayer. And here's what I've been learning about prayer. First off, what's the purpose of prayer? When you think about it, why do we pray in the first place? Many of us would probably say, well, I pray to tell God what I'd like so that he will do what I'd like him to do. Even if that's not what we would articulate, in practice, that's typically how we approach prayer, right? I tell God what I need so that God will do what I need so that I will be more comfortable. In truth, the purpose of prayer is not to somehow get God to do what we want, but rather for us to draw into greater intimacy with Him so that He can begin to shape our hearts to be a reflection of His heart. So that He can begin to shape our wants and needs and and the perception of our world to better fit the way He sees the world. And so that we can easier it's easier for us to submit our desires to him that's the purpose of prayer but i will be honest with you more often than not when it comes to prayer particularly within the evangelical christian community of which we are a part here's what we have tended to do you should pray okay but we never actually go on to say how to pray when to pray what to pray you should pray And in so doing, what we've done is it's almost like we've handed a child a ball to a sport they've never learned and said, go out on the field and play, you're in. Uh, Okay. Maybe they've seen somebody play before, they've seen people praying, and they're like, but I'm uncomfortable. And so is it any wonder why we're hesitant to do it? I was listening to an interview in which there was a girl who had... um, who had decided that she had been raised as a Christian and chose to become a Muslim instead. And this interviewer was was asking her why she'd chosen to do that. And one of the primary reasons she chose to become a Muslim is because they tell me when to pray, tell me how to pray, they tell me where to pray and what to pray. I love it. And the interviewer is like, wait a minute, as a Christ follower, or as a Christian, weren't you allowed to pray whenever you wanted? however you wanted, whenever you wanted, and whatever you wanted. And she said, well, yeah. And because of that, I never prayed. There's something about freedom. And I, I, I don't want to put anybody on the spot. But think about that for a moment. Sometimes our freedom to approach God any way we want actually hinders us or keeps us from approaching Him at all. Whether it's because we don't know what to do We're not sure how to do it, or quite honestly, we don't feel the need to do it at all. Because there's something paralyzing about a a blank canvas. It's just uncomfortable to know how to start. So, so, So what should I do? What should I pray? How should I pray? But let's say that we we move past that. We, We muscle past the uncomfortability of doing something we don't feel adequate about. We don't feel good at this whole prayer thing, but I'm going to do it anyway. Well, the problem with that is that we tend to pray out of the soil of our own sinful nature. Selfish people pray selfish prayers. Angry people pray angry prayers. Greedy people pray greedy prayers. Anxious people pray anxiety-filled prayers. 
out of the soil of our own lives and our own depravity come the prayers that we lift up to God. And that's understandable. But the truth of the matter is we need prayers that are wiser than us. We need prayers that can help lift our minds and our eyes and our hearts up beyond the choking weeds of our immediate circumstances that would so easily blind us to the fact that our circumstances are not all there is. And so prayers like what Jesus lays out act in a lot of ways like a a lattice in a garden. You guys, don't come to my house because that would not be a good example of a lattice that helps things grow. Go to Diane's house and you will see the purpose of a lattice. If you can see this picture here, you can call it a lattice, you can call it a trellis. The point of it is there, there's cross-hatching, there's boards that give the vines then the ability to grow up and, and to get away just from the soil as well as away from the weeds that tend to just grow around the base of it. And this is... In, the, in a way, a purpose for liturgical prayers or these kind of ancient prayers that have come before us, like the Lord's Prayer. It gives us structure. It gives us stability. It helps guide our prayers. Now, some people would say, hold on a second. Prayers like that are dead. Uh, like the lattice is dead. But the truth of the matter is nobody asks whether a lattice is dead or alive because that's not the point of the lattice. The lattice is there to give structure to a living thing. We are alive. Therefore, our prayers are alive. But the lattice, the most important question is, is it true? Does it guide our prayers into areas that we would want to, as Christ followers, go? Is it able to support a Christian perspective? So rather than asking, is this prayer alive because it was written some 2,000 years ago by Jesus, I would instead ask, is this true? Is this, will this guide me into a place that I need to be and asking things that I need to be asking? And more often than not, these ancient prayers will begin with a recognition not of where we are, but with whom we are speaking. And that's exactly how Jesus' prayer begins. Our Father in heaven. What I love about that opening is that it is a reminder that we are not just speaking to the author and sustainer of the entire world. Yes, he made creation. Yes, he is God and we are not. But it is a reminder of the intimacy that we can have with this creator and sustainer of life. The word that we translate father there is the word Abba. It's the same word that Jesus used to refer to God. It is the single most intimate name for God found anywhere in Scripture. Abba is the word Daddy. Daddy. We know that we can pray to Him because He is our Father, not because we've earned it, not because we were born into it, but because by faith we have given our hearts to Jesus. And when we did, He gave us His Holy Spirit and we were adopted into the family. When we talk about Jesus being the only begotten Son, that means that He is the only true-born Son of God. The rest of us are adopted into His family. That's another conversation for another day, but it is a beautiful picture of the reality that we are sons and daughters of God. Therefore, we have just as much right as our big brother Jesus to use the language, Daddy, Father, our Father in Heaven. Yes, you're our Daddy, but you're also the Creator of everything. You're still God, so may your name remain holy. 
May we never forget that you are God and we are not. And then from there, it's not just a recognition of who he is, but it's also a recognition of how his will is more important or is overarching of anything else we could ever ask for. So let's begin not with God. I got a sliver. Help me get it out. Let's not begin with God. I got a letter in the mail from the IRS. Help me figure it out. God, I'm I'm not sure I'm going to be able to make uh, rent this month. We don't start from the, the... the immediate circumstances, rather we start with who he is and what, we, what he wants in our lives, in our world. May your kingdom come. And remember, a kingdom is wherever the sovereign's will is done. So God, may your kingdom break into our reality. May your will be done here on earth, here in my heart, here in my home, here in my neighborhood, here in my workplace, here at my church, here at my school. May your will be done here just as it is in heaven. And from that foundation, we then begin to pour out of our hearts the things we want to invite him into in our immediate circumstances. God, just like you provided for the Israelites in the desert, manna in the morning, quail at night, every night they went to bed, they trusted that you would provide food for the next day. So they went to bed with nothing in their tents. And every morning you provided for some 40 years as they wandered through the wilderness. For 40 years their clothes didn't wear out. For 40 years you provided water in an arid land. And their faith grew exponentially. You ever notice how many times in the Old Testament when the Jews begin to talk about who God is, they constantly go back to that season of their lives, which was God must have been the least comfortable time of their lives. And yet they constantly refer back to it because it was in that season they saw that God is God and he is able to provide for us even when it doesn't make sense. He's able to decimate an army with a wall of water without us having to lift a hand. Constantly, they remind themselves, God has shown himself to be faithful. So now in these circumstances we find ourselves in, we can rest in this too, because God's in control. So God, you who can provide manna in the middle of a desert, would you provide, give us today our daily bread? And would you forgive us our debts just as we forgive those who are our debtors? Would you, would you forgive us of our sins? just as we are willing to forgive others. Because later on, he'll he'll kind of add on to this by saying, hey, if you're not willing to forgive others, then your Father won't forgive you. Now let's remember where forgiveness starts. Forgiveness starts on the cross. God made the first move. He's the one who said, listen, I love you so much that I am willing to send my Son to die in your place. I am forgiving your sins, not because you earned it, not because you're good enough. You don't deserve it. I simply love you, so I'm willing to do this. He made the first move. And in response, he invites us to be a reflection of that by forgiving others. Jesus told a story about a guy who owed billions, if we were to put it into our current terms. And the king brings him in and he says, how are you going to pay this? And he goes, I can't pay it. Please, I'll do my best. I'll start making payments. Just please don't throw me into jail. And the king relents and he says, listen, your debt is is forgiven. 
It's an astronomical amount, and he forgives the debt, and the man is going, thank you, Lord, I can't believe it. This is amazing. And he walks out of the courtroom, and he sees a friend who owes him 40 bucks. Give me my money! You owe me! And the guy's like, hold on, just give me a little bit of time. No, you have no time. You've had enough time. You've been holding out on me. Give me what you owe me, or I'm calling the cops, and I'm going to throw you into jail until you pay it. And the king, when he hears this, goes, what on earth are you thinking? Did I not just forgive you of this great amount? And you then go and rub your friend's nose in this little amount? You've totally missed the heart of this. Okay, if that's how you want to play it, then by the same way that you have judged your friend, I will judge you. You owe it all. But remember, forgiveness begins with our Father. We get to reflect that heart of forgiveness to our neighbors, to our family members, to everybody we come into contact with. So forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, I want to be very clear here. God doesn't tempt anyone. James, Jesus' half-brother, made that point abundantly clear in James chapter 1 when he says, God does not tempt anyone. We are all tempted when our flesh draws us towards something that is alluring, and then when that temptation gives birth to sin, we give in to it and we run to it, and that's when we find ourselves enslaved. Temptation doesn't come from God. God doesn't tempt anyone. But our prayer here and what Jesus is inviting us to pray is a recognition that we who are citizens of the kingdom of God still reside in a sin-scarred world, surrounded by things that vie for our worship with him. And we still have parts of us that are drawn to those things that are contrary to his heart for us. And so the prayer is God... I know that I'm going to be tempted. I know it's going to come. I know there's going to be things that will vie with you for my rightful worship. Would you protect me? Would you protect me from an enemy who would love nothing more than to steal my joy, kill my faith, destroy my relationship with you and with one another? Would you protect me from an enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking somebody who he may devour? I draw near to you and I surround myself with others so that I won't be like that, like that gazelle that gets isolated from the rest of the pack and then is easy pickings. Would you protect me? Both from my, my own flesh as well as from my mortal enemy who has, who has chosen to make war on me because I am a citizen of your kingdom. So there you have it. Jesus' prayer. And what I want you to notice is that what he is not asking his disciples to do is simply pray a rote prayer that you memorize and all you do is repeat the words because if that were the case, if all we were supposed to do is repeat those words without ever thinking about what we're saying, as if it's some incantation that can somehow cajole God to do what we want, then we are now becoming a babbler. We are now just repeating empty-headed things without thinking about it. The invitation here is to pray differently than we would naturally pray by our own flesh. It's to use this prayer as a lattice or a trellis that can help our, lift our heads out of the soil of our own self-depravity you know, 
and lift our heads up above the choking weeds of our immediate circumstances and fix our eyes on Him and allow His kingdom perspective to shape our prayers so that the things we yearn for, the things we long for, match the things He wants for us in the first place. That the things that break His heart would ultimately break our heart that the things that bring him joy would ultimately bring us joy. And that our responses when people slap us on the face would be a response that he would give. That we would break the cycle of returning evil for evil, taking an eye for an eye. And instead respond to curses with blessing. Jesus is giving us plenty of opportunities even this week to practice this given me some. I'm sure you probably can identify some other areas where you're like, yeah, I've been getting opportunities to practice turning the other cheek. Opportunities to practice forgiving rather than holding on to anger, which ultimately leads me towards wanting to murder. We don't do it perfectly, but this is the prayer. Now, some of you might be sitting here going, okay, wait a minute. Eric, this seems somewhat impersonal to pray words that somebody else has written even if it's Jesus, right? I'm going to ask you this. This morning, you came in here and you sang some songs, lyrics you didn't write, to a tune you didn't write. Was your worship empty and impersonal because you didn't write those songs? No. Now, they could have been, I don't want to speak for anybody. I don't want to put words into your mouth. But if you simply sing the words without ever thinking about what you're singing, then yeah, you know what? It probably is empty because you're not entering into that. You're not taking those words and allowing them to become the cry of your heart. But I can tell you from personal experience and I can tell you from having conversations with many of you that sometimes the words on the screen articulate how we would want to those cries of our heart better than we might be able to put into words. Sometimes these words on the screen lead us into places that we would not otherwise go and leads us to say things to God that we truly feel but would not otherwise have articulated because that's just not where we tend to think. And the beautiful part about these songs is that we get to join in singing them with 200 of our brothers and sisters on a Sunday morning. It is communal. And prayers like this do the same thing for us. It helps us to join in with centuries of other believers who have prayed these same words to God. It leads us into similar postures that Jesus took in his own prayer life. This term for prayers like this and prayers like Psalm 23 or Psalm 139 that that people have prayed through centuries and even some that people have penned on their own that are not biblical but are founded on scripture. We call them liturgical prayers. And that word liturgical simply means the work of the people. It is communal. It is a sense of this is a shared prayer. And you notice the wording that Jesus uses throughout his prayer. He never uses I, me, or you. Because he's coming at it from a communal standpoint. Our Father in heaven. Give us today 
our daily bread and forgive us our debts just as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You notice this is communal. Now, in Jesus' day and age, I think that that was just part and parcel of what it meant to be part of the community of God. But for us, living in Southern California in 2017, almost 2018, we live in a very individualistic society. So often we are taught, particularly here in the evangelical wing of the Protestant Christian church, we are taught that it is our own personal relationship with God that we are seeking to cultivate. And we isolate ourselves. Our prayers become only our prayers. And they become teeny tiny because we are praying about our own little sphere of influence, forgetting that we get to be part of the body of Christ that's so much bigger and richer. And when we pray... When we join Jesus in praying these kind of prayers, when we pray through Scripture, the beautiful thing is it's, we get to join with centuries of believers who have prayed these same prayers, and it's as if we walk into a worship service that has been going for two centuries. I'm sorry, two millennia. Over 2,000 years, believers have been praying these same things, and we get to walk in and join them in praying the same things. Now, some of you would be like, okay, so what am I supposed to do here, Eric? Am I supposed to just use this and, and, and teach and, and read through this and that's all I do? I know some people who use it. They, they, the terminology that my buddy Russell uses, and I love this, is I pull myself through these prayers. It's almost as if I'm pulling this, this comb through my hair and it, and it finds the tangles in my soul and it helps to straighten them out. That's a beautiful picture for him. For me, the way that I've been using this in the last several weeks that I've been practicing this both personally and with my family is I use these prayers like a lattice. It's not that they are alive. I am alive. It's not that this prayer, these words are alive. My prayers are alive and they can grow up and I use this lattice to help guide my prayer time. So let me just, rather than telling you about it, let me just show you what this looks like. And please know, I'm not doing this to curry your favor or your approval. I'm trying not to be a hypocrite here. I'm just trying to model it a little bit for you. So whether this one counts or not, God, you make, okay, here we go, whatever. Father God, I love the fact that I get to call you my daddy. I'm so grateful that we can come before you as kids knowing that you listen to, to what's going on in our lives. I know that you have put this world together and that you're in control. I thank you that you take the time to listen to our prayers. And I pray, Father, that your name would remain holy, that we would remember that you are God and we are not. Would you help us to, to keep that perspective in everything we go about doing? And God, God my, my prayer, our prayer, is that your kingdom would continue to advance and that your will would be done in our hearts, which would then spill over into our homes, which would then spill over into our neighborhoods, which would spill over into our workplaces and our schools, and that this church would be a house of light, a beacon of hope. And when I say church, I don't mean this building. I mean us as people because we're the church. This building's not the church. So would your will be done in us just as it is in heaven so that your will would be done in Costa Mesa, in Orange County, in California, in the United States, and in this world just as it is in heaven. And God, you already know what we need. 
So would you provide what we need when we need it so that we would place our faith in you and not in our bank account, not in our politicians and not in anything else. You are our hope. Would you provide what we need? And Father God, we recognize just how much you've forgiven us. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that we can come before you and you call us saints, not sinners. I I just love that and I can't understand that because I know I don't deserve it. And in the same way, would you help me now be a reflection of that same grace giving? Help us to break the cycle of returning an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And Father, you know the ways our hearts are drawn towards things that could easily lead us astray. Things that seem attractive in the moment, but God, you know the way that it, it enslaves us when we give ourselves over to it. So would you protect us from the things that we are tempted to run after? And would you protect us from our enemy who wants to take us down? God, we trust you. It's your kingdom we want to advance. It's your name we want to make great. So have your way in us, we pray. Jesus, in your holy name, we pray this. Amen. That is the way that we can use a trellis or a lattice of prayer to guide our own prayer life. It reminds us to fix our eyes on Him. It reminds us to pull our heads up above the soil of our own selfishness and our own depravity and to to lift our heads up above the choking weeds of our immediate circumstances so that we can commune with Him, draw near to Him, so that He can shape our hearts to be a reflection of His. Now, I know that this has been like drinking from the fire hose this morning. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. I know that we've just scratched the surface of this. And I want you to know that in the, in the spring of 2018, so just a few months from now, we're going to spend a couple of months working through some of this and other spiritual practices, just going, God, how, can, how do you want to and how do you use these kind of practices to shape our hearts so that we can be a better reflection of you and so that Our eyes are fixed on you and not on the circumstances of our lives. How do you want to use these things to strengthen us? So this will be a conversation that will be ongoing. I would imagine that there are some of you in here that you're like, okay, this is great. I'm hungry for more. What can I do to get more? Well, I'm just a novice in this. Quite honestly, I was raised in the Protestant Christian church and particularly, and we are all in kind of like the evangelical wing. And here's the problem. The evangelical wing has looked at some of the things that, that have taken place in Catholicism and said, okay, this feels way too temple model-y, so we're going to distance ourselves from it. And in so doing, what we've done is we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. We've taken some things that are very good, that may have been misused a little bit, or may have begun to become just rote memorization, and we've said, well, then we were not going to do that at all. Just pray. Do it. And in so doing, this to me has been a breath of fresh air. Some of you who may have grown up in the Catholic Church or in a more liturgical church, for you, you're like, man, I've spent all of this time trying to get out from just feeling like I have to do it a certain way. I want freedom, and I'm not, and for you, this may feel like a step back. I'm just simply saying, for me and where I'm at, this has been a breath of fresh air because I've not had a lattice to use. I have disregarded the lattices that have been presented to me, and I'm excited to know that they're there so that we can be trained how to pray. If you, want, if you want to talk about this more, I'm available, but my buddy Russell, Russell, where are you at? He's teaching across the street. Shocking. So Russell Toller, is an, he, he, I'm not going to say he's an expert. He's probably several months further down the road than I am on this. And he's been 
trained in kind of using this to help um, shape his prayer life. We had him share in our life group a few weeks ago, and I'll tell you, all of us were like, can you just keep talking? We want more of this. We need this. And we spent time praying. If you in a life group would like Russell to come and share with you, he'd be available. I already talked to him about it. He said he would love to. If you want to talk to somebody about it, you can. You, if you have questions, my guess is there's probably more questions that were raised today probably than answers given. That's great. On those connection cards that are in the, in the seat back, if you have a question you want to write, let me know because we'd love to respond to it. But now, let's, let us just respond to God through some words that somebody else wrote, but that we as a body of believers get to share in worshiping our God because He is God. And he wants relationship with us. So let's worship together.